this is Brett White and welcome to Being Leaders, a podcast exploring the mistakes, the challenges and the stuff ups that have helped shape our leadership journeys. I will be joined by successful, honest and amazing leaders from around the world talking about their fears, their failures and their freakouts. You'll be inspired, encouraged and even a little surprised by the lessons, insights and learnings that these incredible people share. So thanks for joining us and enjoy today's Being Leaders conversation. I'm personally really excited to have as our special guest today, Scott Neeson. He's the founder of Cambodian Children's Fund in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. His story is inspiring and personally challenging, and I have had the privilege of working alongside Scott with CCF for several years. Scott is an exceptional leader and one of the humblest and most compassionate people I've ever met. The impact he has made on the streets of Cambodia through the lives of thousands of young people and their families and their communities is incredible. Today we chat about some of the challenges, lessons and mistakes that have helped shape his journey as a leader. It's great to have Scott with us and it's great to have you journeying with us today. It's great to have Scott Neeson with me on the Being Ladies podcast. Welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking me. No, it's great. Um, I've had the privilege of working uh, alongside you a little bit in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and I know you've now been uh, in Cambodia working with Cambodia Children's Fund that you founded about 17 years, is that right? 17 years ago, yes. So what's it been like just you know, before we get into the fears or failures, um, what's it been like over there um, walking through this kind of COVID uh, season uh, in Cambodia? It was it was very fearful atmosphere at first because it came later to Cambodia. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of us felt like we'd dodged a bullet and seeing what was going on in the US especially, yeah. um, some of the European countries, there's a lot of concern about. Uh, however, the government did jump in it very quickly they had the advantage of accessing the Chinese vaccine, the Sinovacs and Sinopharms, and they moved very quickly on getting the population, especially in Phnom Penh, where there's a high density living. They made a real effort to get people vaccinated. We had our staff and most community members vaccinated within a month of the first community spread, which is a terribly tragic event when people Mm. broke out of um, quarantine infected a number of people. So the government was right on top of that. Um, within six weeks, we started vaccinating our students, high school, yeah, secondary. Wow. Yeah, and um, right now they're vaccinating the younger kids, the 12s, yeah, wow. 12s. I mean, a lot of your or most of your work um, is in, you know, very, you know, poor, disadvantaged sort of community. Yeah. Has, has, has it obviously the impacts in those communities been pretty massive, I would, I would assume? Yeah, it's, had, it's been uh, devastating. Yeah. Part of it, of course, um, the overall um, slowdown in the economy. But for the, the people that we deal with, of course, they are uh, making a living. The HIs are people who go um, scavenging through yeah. for recyclables. And, and this was a surprise to me. When the COVID hit and the government shut their borders with Thailand and Vietnam, the people, uh, our communities, um, essentially had no income. And the recyclables are packaged into the various metals, plastics, hard plastics, and they're shipped over to Vietnam where they're resold. Mm. And when the border closed, the buyers of the recyclables just disappeared. Yeah, wow. And 
it was you saw these massive piles of recyclables stacking up and um, it, there's just no place to sell. So we had to move very quickly um, in order to get food packages, uh, look after the healthcare into those communities. About 1,200 families had sure. no income. So yeah, we're moving wow. around food packages in and out. It became more complex um, when there were red zones. There was four, sorry, there was five red zones across Cambodia where it was shut down completely. And unfortunately, three of those five were in the, uh, the Sting Min Che, the landfill yeah, area, yeah. which made it very difficult. However, the, the government were um, supportive, so we're allowed to move across borders with obviously some restrictions and some care, leaving packages for designated people to pick up um, large amounts of food as well as uh, education materials. Yeah. So we, we were doing school packages each week for the younger kids, and there was a, a real race to get the secondary high school curriculum online and then, of course, see which students couldn't access any, um, any form of device. Yeah, yeah. Many of them had uh, family smartphones they could use. Um, others we had to work with to get used iPads, whatever we could. So it was, um, and I got to the education department especially, did wonderful things. Yeah. It was, um, they hardly missed the beat. Because one, one of the challenges in those kind of areas um, is that, you know, they're so t- close together, like they're just living yeah. on top of each other. Um, and can, so if someone gets living. COVID, how do you... How yeah. do you stop the spread of that in some of those, um, mm-hmm. you know, those poorer kind of villages and communities where they're just basically living on top of each yeah. other? Yeah, of course, part of it was the community education, uh, teaching people the, the benefits of wearing um, face masks, yeah. hand gel. Uh, because we have the satellite schools, we're able to hold those uh, sessions pretty quickly when COVID first raised its head. So we, um, we were able to supply masks to everyone hand gel. We used our students, of course, to spread the word. And there was enough concern that the people took it seriously. Yeah, it's good. You'd go down. <laughs> when, when it was locked down, it was, wasn't locked down by individual home like many other countries, a lockdown by village. Yeah. So a group of maybe 25, 30 homes would be, they'd be locked down. The benefit there, of course, is that people, um, they, they supervise each other. It would be mm. a major faux pas not to wear a mask and not to wash your hands. And yeah. um, our older kids, of course, would point it out to people. And within that community lockdown, of course, they're much more wary of letting people in who they don't know, who may um, who may be carrying. And that really helped. It yeah. also, of course, from a psychological, emotional point of view, the kids weren't locked away alone. They could still play with each other. They could... Yeah have social interactions as could the parents within those communities. So it worked out quite well and people watched over each other. And we had very few cases down there in the end. Yeah, okay. Mm. Um, Do you feel like the fear element around the whole COVID thing is kind of starting to dissipate in those communities? Yeah, it is. My concern, of course, is this dissipates too soon. Yeah. Because there's still the Delta variants out there. Um, I'd like... You know, I'd, I'd like people to have at least a good understanding of what the status is, but yeah. I, I haven't been there. And I've been, of course, overseas for two weeks, but the um, the cases seem to have dropped. Yeah. We still have some cases. We had a few deaths down there from those who got uh, compromised with their immune systems. Yeah. Um, how, um, you know, that certainly got people's attention as well, the relatively young people. 
yeah, and okay. got people's attention. But there's uh, there's still a fear down there, which yeah. I think will serve people well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some fear is good. <laughs> it is, yeah. So that degree of um, intensity about the yeah. COVID, yeah, COVID absolutely. virus. So we're talking, um, you know, this podcast is all about, you know, conversations around, you know, fears or failures, freakouts, mistakes that we have made as kind of leaders mm-hmm. in our journey. Uh, you've been leading um, Cambodia Children's Fund for 17 years and, you, you know, what you've done is absolutely phenomenal and the growth and the, and the changes that you've had to deal with. I'm sort of curious to know as you reflect back what, what are, you know, or what is one of those uh, mistakes or fears that you've had to kind of walk through um, and learn from in that kind of 17-year journey? The, the mistakes I've made, the areas where um, I failed initially was when I was establishing CCF. When I was uh, at the landfill finding kids, getting them into school, and if they had families, moving them off the landfill, rental accommodation was relatively straightforward but when we when I was moving more into working within the community in the fabric community uh, there was some serious learning yeah and I'd spent goodness 20 something years 26 years in the film business and on the corporate side so you know I arrived there with a an established set of expectations and values as to what what was right and wrong um things that I think, you know, from my perspective, we're empirically right or wrong. And there needed to be, and I, um, there needed to be a far more um, humble approach. There was no hubris, but having spent essentially my whole life with a certain sense of values um, in relation to, say, domestic violence, drug use, there has to be a sense of understanding and pragmatism in the community. And some of the decisions were seemed right from my standpoint, but without a complete understanding of the dynamics in the community and what the ramifications would be, um, it, w- it was a lesson in how to take a step back and let go of all the, um, what I thought were the givens, the rules, yeah. able to take a step back and become far more flexible in how I saw things and how we did things. It was a major step into pragmatism and an understanding that what I believed may, may be right or wrong. Um, however, it just didn't work in that environment. Yeah, for and sure. It was, a, it was a good lesson because once I was able to um, understand, it allowed for better solutions to the problems I came up against. And I, yeah, I spent the first three, four years um, realising that the more time I spent there, the less I knew. And it was, yeah, it was a remark. It was remarkable just how many things that I took as being a given just weren't real. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a challenge, I think, for leaders generally. But when leaders are engaged in wanting to, you know, do good, to serve, uh, you know, that social impact piece, um, we bring in that, as you said, when we bring in that, you know, our experience and our Mm -hmm. preconceived ideas of how this should work and, uh, yes. And often people go into situations at doing with the right intention, the right motivation and the right heart, um, yes. but can actually cause more problems um, uh, yeah, in that absolutely. journey. Yeah. And, and you have to, under, I mean, there are things I consider to be universal understanding, um, a universal acceptance of right and wrong. 
and sometimes they were. However, the ramifications were outweighed outweighed the um, the crime, and you have to take a step back um, and work within those parameters. And of course, think um, look at ways out well outside the box and how to how to solve these things. And yeah, until I was able to dismiss my preconceptions and universal beliefs, it was. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of missteps there, a lot of missteps along the way. How do you feel that you kind of changed as a, you know, as a leader or, as you know, even just as a person in those first sort of four to five oh, years? I, it's the most humbling experience. Yeah, it wow. really is. It's a humbling experience. Not just, um, not just to work with the individuals you meet, the things that the children and the parents had been through, it just, it was staggering. Yeah. And they still had a, a resilience and uh, an ability to bounce back mm. from, well, obviously the parents themselves have been through the worst of times, the Pol Pot days, 75 to 79. Mm. And those who are over the age of 45, 50 were children in the Pol Pot days. Yeah, yeah. Everyone lost relatives and uh, direct siblings, parents. So there's a lot of post-traumatic stress, which was something that took me a long time to really understand the impact it had on the day-to-day work and the um, the ability for people to have um, explosive tempers, the um, propensity for substance abuse. In the, and again, talking about things that I'd always considered universal values, that the, the connection between mother and child was unbreakable and the mother would do anything uh, in order to protect her children and finding children on the landfill that had been left there by mothers because they had remarried and fathers of the new new husband didn't want to be looking after some other guy's kids. Yeah, and wow. so the mother prioritised uh, having a new husband, having that security and avoiding the stigma of being a single mother and just leaving them there. Yeah. And, you, and I realised, and it took a long time to realise that, that that mother-child bond that mother-child bond isn't unbreakable at all. Mm. And just the horrors the people must have been through in those years. And so once you accept that and work with them and, um, again, not judge not judge mm. the mothers or the new husbands and just try and work to, without ego, without preconceptions, to make it as good as possible. I mean, I think that's a challenge too, isn't it, is that whole non-judgment um, yes. You know, yep. uh, it's so easy to look at someone's life or circumstances and make a judgment mm-hmm. um, without really knowing the full story. Yeah. And even when you know we do know the full story, we can still find ourselves um, passing judgments, which then would have impacts on the way that we um, lead lead those people, the way that we interact with yes. those people. And that, that was the other thing too, understanding that um, they you were looked at as having a leadership role. So you're expected to make the right decisions and have that balance. And there's not as much tolerance for um, a judgmental uh, person in, in there, especially when you're overseas. It took a yeah. long time to unwind myself, um, set aside the, what I considered, again, universal values, understand that the both the circumstances that people faced in that situation, as well as their past experiences, all mixed mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. And... The big lesson was, of course, the understanding that I have never and could never walk in their shoes. No. I have no idea. I couldn't imagine going through what they went through. And it's not till you talk to, say, their grandmothers and understand what they've um, seen in their days. 
you sort of get an idea and you um, you realise that we've got, I had no, uh, had no right to make judgments and try and um, rationalise what they were doing. It just is what it is. Yeah. Um, I think one of the, you know, the keys I often talk around in the leadership space is how important it is for leaders to build trust. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, if a leader uh, builds trust, then, you know, it's a lot more easier to them to, to lead and to, um, and to do what they do with the people around them. You know, I'm thinking in your context, kind of that journey of being, you know, this, the, the foreigner that comes in, um, yes. you know, with, with, with all life's answers, uh, and looked up to it, you know, as a leader. And, and you know, the more you were there, the more people mm-hmm. did that. That process of building kind of trust um, with that group of people, what mm-hmm. were some of the kind of key lessons around, you know, building trust with, with you know, local people? Well, I think the most important thing in terms of trust was empathy, being yeah. able to, um, as I said, suspend a judgment, but to try, uh, try my best understand that they had been through some horrific times um, except that I couldn't um, I couldn't empathize to the extent of feeling their pain and feeling what they'd been through it was simply being able to listen and I think that's yeah. one of the most critical parts of um, trust and leadership is the ability to listen as opposed to talk um, to listen to what the issues really are as opposed to trying to re- resolve them based on um, established parameters, established um, beliefs. It really was uh, listening was so important, and that was I think that was probably the key the key moment when I was able to listen to what was being said. I mean, truly listen, not yeah, just yeah, the words, yeah. but the underlying uh, issues there. And it was sometimes it was substance abuse, there'd been sexual abuse, domestic violence, and even now I've been dealing with parents and fathers, particularly who've got substance abuse issues and seeing it simply as an obstacle and not uh, either an evil um, or, mm. or any other sort of a value judgment. How do you sort of protect yourself as a leader working in these spaces from, you know, your, you know that kind of passing the trauma onto yourself, um, building your own resilience around, you know, working alongside um, incredibly, traumatized um people obviously that has got to have impacts personally on you as a leader are there things that you've kind of done to help you navigate that well i did have i mean i had some great people working for me the most uh, the most notable being of course horn who i thought was i think one of the most magnificent people um he had a natural understanding empathy he managed, he had a remarkable um, sense of respect within the community, sense of humour, and he was a great deputy. I knew mm, I could give him mm. things to do. Of course, he, he died very tragically and at very young, and he's been very hard to replace. He had a natural um, affection for the locals. So it was, at the moment, I mean, really get a lot of my lessons, oddly enough, from the kids yeah. who, as you know, you'd expect <laughs> to be both traumatized um, withdrawn hopeless but they're just such um, barrels of hope joy um, it was a case I've said it many times or the thing that surprised me when I first went to the landfill was that these kids were not asking for money and uh, not asking for anything material they're always asked to go and study so yeah, well. please take me to study mm. that 
Well, first of all, I mean, that is humbling, but it's, and it was also something I couldn't walk away from. Mm. And to understand that all they wanted was uh, an opportunity, um, that made it so much easier. And taking my, taking strength from their resilience, you know, as you know, they're just so full of joy, um, hope, mm. gratitude. Um, there's this remarkable sense of um, happiness, a joy that I just don't see anyplace else. And being able to focus on, those those um, transitions of kids who've been through tough times and are now becoming leaders in their own right. I get a lot of um, a lot of peace from yeah, that. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think you have to, you know, intentionally reflect on yes. the on those transformations um, because mm-hmm. you could quite easily get stuck in the, you know, what's not working and you know some of the lives that um, aren't being transform yeah. then mm-hmm. there are some absolutely beautiful stories of change and transformation and yeah. constantly i think as leaders reminding ourselves of those those wins those victories those transformation the things that we actually are doing um and that are working i think is obviously a really important part of you know that journey um particularly when you're working alongside um you know you know young young people that have uh, had a really tough and particularly from our perspective or my oh, perspective, you know, yes. I go, how is that young person so happy? Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, you meet some of these young people and they're, as you say, they're so full of joy and smiles and, and I go. That level of confidence, yeah. want, willingness to, the, the desire to engage in a, mm. in a very trusting way. And when I take people on the community walks, the, the, inevitably the most um, the greatest surprise is seeing these little kids and they're living in the most squalor, but coming out of their homes full of joy, running up, wanting to talk, getting excited. And their the level of poverty is very pronounced, but mm. the level of um, happiness, contentment, safety, uh, trust, you know, most of all the hope they have, they can see what, um, see what the potential is. And there are people in their community have gone, gone the course. They've gone from landfill to university graduates so I take a lot. But, yeah, ultimately, though, still, yeah, we are humans and it can be a grind when a yeah, lot of sure. things go wrong, especially personal, when um, children or um, people you're close to pass away yeah. or, or disappear. Mm. And it's just you've got to hope that the, um, they don't all come back to back, that there's some balance yeah. in there. And you've used the word hope a few times. Yeah. And I'm thinking it, the, that's a powerful uh I mean, you know, I get my question. How is how important is it for a leader to be instilling hope um, and bringing hope in in you know the mm-hmm. context of of the places they're leading, whether it be you know the staff that you lead um, or mm-hmm. the community that you lead? Yeah. Well, I, I think in terms of hope, the kids have taught me all about hope. Yeah. Um, I brought. They had the hope. I brought the opportunity. So it was okay. a nice combination, bring them into school. And I mean, it, it's essential. You, one of the problems with being a leader is I think there's a natural tendency to look forward to the things that have to be done, the problems that we have to solve today, tomorrow, long term, without looking back at the, uh, the accomplishments, things that have gone well and the progress. Mm-hmm. In my case, uh, the progress of individuals, as you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, kids and mothers, uh, families who have progressed enormously, and thankfully have their photographs or videos, so yep. I can actually see um, side by side 
the difference there. Um, otherwise, I, I, I think I would probably burn out yeah, just sure. dealing with the what I've got to do now, um, where the obstacles are, the next hurdle, some of the challenges, whether it's dealing with governments, uh, bureaucracy, fundraising, operations, um, you know, intractable community members. It's There's a lot going on there. But, you know, you, the ability to make progress makes up for so much and being able to recognise the progress. Yeah, absolutely. How do you sort of, as a leader, sort of keep that hope in front of others that you're leading? Um, you know, staff that are teaching these young people or, uh, you know, running the community programs or, you know, working in the social um, areas. What are some, maybe some keys that you just constantly are aware of to keep that kind of hope in front of people? And I think the first thing is to keep a, um, keep the organisation with an impeccable reputation. Yeah. Um, you really have to walk the talk. Um, and I think that that's counted for an awful lot in establishing CCF mm. is always putting values first and um, putting the the advantages of families and children education well well above the, um, the advantages to the organisation or any individuals within the organisation. It's being able to um, show by actions instead of words that what we're doing really matters, and that seems to that seems to have a, a sense of self um, self momentum once you get it going and once people believe and see it they start to um, do the same yeah and there's a really strong sense of morale despite you know despite the last two years with covid yeah wow people are still buoyant and they've really stepped up mm, mm. But it, uh, i think you really have to walk the talk which yeah. is difficult in in what um, we're doing in the landfill of course there's a lot there that um you know, there's so many areas of missteps because to a certain degree, you're making um, you're making decisions which aren't open ended. You you've got to make decisions on whether it's um, say drug use, whether you contact authorities, whether you press for someone uh, to be arrested, whether you work with them, um, and of course, there's so many components there. So being able to walk walk those uh, walk through those decisions um, with a sense of um, respect. For others, pragmatism and understanding of the dynamics there. Um, I think that's necessary. Otherwise, again, I think both the staff and some of the locals would end up giving up hope. Yeah, for sure. No, it's great. Look, I, I just appreciate you making the time to no, sort of have this conversation. Um, and I usually finish know, off by telling people they've got to come and see it for themselves, but you've yeah. seen it for yourself. Well, you yeah, I, I would encourage others um, and, you know, people can... Uh, just click on uh, the link um, if, uh, that mm -hmm. I'll put in for Cambodia Children's Fund if they're interested yeah. to know more about what you're doing. Just to come and I, to kind of wrap us up because I'm, you know, I'm trying to keep these little podcasts down to sort of yeah. 25, 30 minutes. Um, if you could give one piece of advice to kind of emerging young leaders around the world, what would it be? It would. Be, um, I have learned that for me, um, empathy is an enormously yeah. valuable tool. You know, I think it's more and more valuable than either being smart, educated, um, articulate. It's the understand the ability to understand what someone's really saying beyond yeah. just words. Um, yeah. Being able to stop talking and listen without wanting to jump in, hear what they are feeling um, and what they're saying beyond just words. Yeah, I read a quote once that sort of said, um, 
You know, we need to learn to listen with the goal of understanding, uh, not listen with the goal of answering the question. Um, yes. And so it is, yeah. it's a different way of listening, right? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. makes uh, it makes such, for me, it made such a profound difference yeah. to how I did things and how I perceived situations, um, individuals. It made a, a massive difference. Yeah, that's great. What's one recommendation, like a book or podcast or something that you would recommend for leaders to kind of read or engage in? I'm a fan of a number of the more um, established writers. Tony Robbins' book. Yep. Um, I'm a fan of this, um, the, the Covey books, the, um, the rules, but also um, some of the books have really uh, changed me uh, more spiritual. Yeah, okay. uh, there's a book by Peter Matheson, uh, The Snow Leopard, which is one of the most, I think it's the most magnificent book. And it's a journey. It's one man's journey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's through Nepal. Um, and, but it's really his own coming to terms. Yeah, right. It was written, I believe, in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, okay. My goodness, he's an amazing writer. I'll have to check that one out. Um, the Snow Leopard. Yes, yeah, Snow Leopard. highly recommended. Yeah, cool. Um, I'll put it on my list for sure. What about, what, what's, what's one thing that Scott Neeson wants to be known for? You know, my, uh, I don't really want to be known but I, I realized maybe five six years ago that my legacy will be children and children of children and the grandkids yep. of these kids who will have such a better life mm. um i knowing that there's been a break in that generational um not just poverty but the the fractured lack of family mm. um responsibility um care that's gone, you know, it's gone because mm. you've seen the students have been through yeah. terrific education. Most have gone through university. They understand uh, all the concepts of human development. And I've seen now that they're much, they're such good parents and they're yeah, becoming good great. parents. And so it's a, you know, because of me and all the CCF staff have broken that, that chain, mm. we've broken this cycle of um, neglect, poverty, all of it. Yeah, so you're not because you're not just changing one kind of a person's life you're actually changing no. systems and structures and all of that that goes with it to actually help you know them to be yes. able to build something moving forward and beyond education which yeah. i think is probably maybe too much of a focus in our developed world but also looking at human development beyond social media um, interactions uh, understanding mm -hmm. leadership within a family leadership in the community uh, going to a larger stage uh, i think that's as important as education yeah, yeah. and as you know bringing the grannies in because i think yeah, wisdom and value yeah. left behind to a large extent too mm, mm. the grannies gotta love them um, yes indeed yeah i do i miss them <laughs> they are, uh, man, they're going strong too yeah, the most so resilient good. bunch yeah they are. yeah they are and we yeah. and as you say we so much kind of wisdom and love um you know yes. in them to give and to bring which is you know beautiful mm -hmm. well you got family values uh, which i think certainly have been lost in Cambodia mm, with the mm. roof days and understanding of um, storytelling traditions and all that, all those pieces, yeah, yeah. simple things like what things were like parents cared. Uh, there was affection. There was understanding. There wasn't ubiquitous domestic violence. No. And I just don't want that to be lost. It was a beautiful no, culture great. before. Yeah, yeah for sure. Mm. Well, thank you so much for making Thanks. the time uh, to have a bit of a chat. I've enjoyed the conversation and I know others will get a lot out of it. So really appreciate you and yep. um, just the opportunity to have a chat about, about leadership and your context. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, mate.
Exactly. See you over there. See you in non Yeah, see you soon. <laughs> Bye.